On Easter, I always like it if we sing that first hymn. It has a kind of Gilbert and Sullivan quality to it, and that shouldn't surprise us since the music was written by Arthur Seymour Sullivan. But the best line in the hymn is the end of the first verse. Led them with unmoistened foot through the Red Sea waters. So you want to ask yourself, didn't his feet get a little wet? No. Unmoistened foot. That's right. I'm not going to preach on the gospel, but I just want to observe that uh, uh, Mary Magdalene in the Eastern Orthodox Church is called the Apostle to the Apostles. And uh, the reason for that is, is that she was the first one to see and touch the risen Savior. And it seems to me ironic that uh, for 2,000 years that was sort of lost in translation uh, since we didn't have any women, women in the leadership of the church until uh, fairly recently. So it's nice to uh, always read about the apostle to the apostles. Some of you may ask the question, why do I pronounce it Mary Magdalene? Because. <laughs> Actually, when I was off to seminary, my home parish was St. Matthew's Church in San Mateo, and uh, the then Archbishop of Canterbury came to St. Matthew's uh, to visit the rector there, and he preached a couple of times, and I remember on one occasion he preached about Mary Magdalene. And I said, from now on, that is the way I am going to pronounce Mary Magdalene. So that's where I got it from. This is the ground zero of the Christian year, and it is the time when we reflect on the thematic expression of this liturgical season. Many things that are important. Episcopalians use an ancient Latin maxim about worship. Lex orendi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief, or what we pray we believe. And it indicates to us that the worship life of Christian people from the jump was the thing that animated all of our theological expressions about the nature of the mystery of Christ. It animated the way in which we understood our pastoral relationship one with another. It animated the way in which we understand how we are God's people in the world. And it isn't glib to say to somebody, what do Episcopalians believe if they ask you that? To come, tell them to come to the public worship of the Episcopal Church. And that will tell you what it is that we believe. And so I hope you can see that implicit in this comment is that the church is prior to the scriptures. The church is prior to the scriptures. And what that means is, of course, that we wrote the Bible. The Bible didn't tell us how we're supposed to do this the worshiping community began to see what it was that they wished to express in their common life together. And they then began to gather the stories about the life and teaching of Jesus and to put it together. And they also used 
what had that up to that time had been their own sacred scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, or what Christian people call the Old Testament. Father Thomas Keating, in his wonderful book, The Mystery of Christ, The Liturgy as Spiritual Experience, says that the Easter season provides us with three major theological themes. God's light, God's life, and God's love. And so the shape of our worship always brings to the surface those three great themes. So every, every year in Easter, I talk about the Easter great 50 days, the shape of the liturgy. There are four themes that uh, connect to those three major theological themes that are very important for us to understand and see how they may affect our lives, even in 2013 in the Silicon Valley. The first one of these is the light of Christ. And the presence of the light of Christ is symbolized by the Paschal candle that's in the sanctuary for the great 50 days of Easter. It's removed uh, after Pentecost, but it always uh, is present when we baptize and when we bury people. The Paschal candle is there as a reminder that this is an Easter liturgy. The light of Christ is a representative of the illuminative processes of God at work in the community of faith we call the church. It is an external light which shows us the way as a community. And we understand in personal terms that it is a light that shows us the way. Shows us how to go. Shows us how to be God's people in the world as individuals. And as the writers on the spiritual life began to reflect on this reality in our liturgical life, they said the light of Christ is an internal light that shines on those aspects of our character that are affirmative and that we need to continue to strengthen and use in relationship. And it is a light that also shines on those aspects of our character that need reform and improvement. And by virtue of that, we have some idea of how to go. And that's what the light of Christ is about. We also read in this season from the Old Testament, uh, and we read a lot of readings from the book of Acts, which is about the history of salvation, about the history of the early Christian church. And when people heard those readings they began to realize, Christian people, that they weren't reading just about ancient figures that are in the past, but they understood that there were people like them that they know now. And more to the point, and perhaps most importantly, they realized that their own personal history is part of the history of salvation. So your history counts it's extremely important and necessary for understanding who we are and how we should live. God needs each one of us to fulfill his purposes for the cosmos. Everybody counts. The third theme in the great 50 days of Easter is baptism. And on Easter, if we don't have baptisms, we renew our baptismal vows, which we're going to do in a few minutes. 
and we understand baptism as the entrance into following the Savior on the way, but more important, we understand it as the template that we lay over our own Christian life and development. So when you hear the renewal of the baptismal vows, listen to the covenant that you're reaffirming that is part of that template that you lay over your own spiritual life and hopefully its maturity. In the early Christian church, another word or synonym for baptism was photismos, light, enlightenment. And so it is an important moment, and it's particularly important for adults in the Christian church who perhaps were baptized as infants to reconnect to the promises of God, to be, to be reminded that through their baptism they now are the possessors of the Spirit of God. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And by virtue of that, this spirit is the, the energy that provides us, uh, to, that allows us to be God's people in the world. And finally, the fourth part of the great 50 days and throughout the year is the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. To be fed on a regular basis with that spiritual food and drink that we may dwell in Christ and he in us. And to be strengthened to be God's people in the world and to go out into the world and make a difference. So I say many times now, it's, it, it, I love it when I hear people say, you know, I don't know about all of this, whether it's true or not. I just know that when I receive Holy Communion, I feel better. And I hope you do. So we are the possessors of these four major themes of the Easter liturgy and throughout the year. And it's important sometimes to see what, how would you express this in 2013 in the culture in which we find ourselves in the Silicon Valley? And what are some examples of how people over the last few years have done this? And every two or three years I read a quote from a book I read a long time ago now called Cryptonomicon. And I'll give you a little precis before I read it. Two of the major characters in the book are Randy and, or three, Amy, his new love, and his former love, Charlene. Randy and Charlene had a relationship when he lived in Seattle. And then he moved away, and he was in the Philippine Islands for a while, and he connected up with Amy Shafto. Charlene, who had received no undertakings from Randy that the relationship was going to go any farther than it had already been, was furious and proceeded to tell all of his friends in Seattle what a jerk he was for throwing her over. So Randy returns to Seattle for part of his work and he brings Amy with him and they attend a party that uh, they were invited to with a number of Randy's old friends who were also friends of Charlene. <laughs> So here's what we hear. The friendliest, 
and most sincere welcome he had gotten was from Scott, a chemistry professor, and Laura, a pediatrician, who, after knowing Randy and Charlene for many years, had one day divulged to Randy in strict confidence that unbeknownst to the academic community at large, they had been spiriting their three children off to church every Sunday morning and even had them baptized. <laughs> Randy had gone into their house once to help Scott wrestle a freshly reconditioned clawfoot bathtub up the stairs and had actually seen the word God written on actual pieces of paper stuck to the walls of their house like on the refrigerator door and the walls of the children's bedrooms where juvenile art tends to be reposited. Little time-wasting projects that had been done during Sunday school, pages torn from coloring books showing a somewhat more multicultural Jesus than the one Randy had grown up with, curly hair, etc. Talking to little biblical kids or assisting disoriented Holy Land livestock. The sight of this stuff around the house co-mingled with normal, that is, secular kid art junk from elementary school, Batman posters, etc., made Randy feel grossly embarrassed. It was like going to the house of some supposedly sophisticated people and finding a neon on black velvet Elvis painting <laughs> hanging above their state-of-the-art Italian, Italian designer furniture. Definitely a social class thing. And it wasn't like Scott and Laura were deadly earnest types, and neither were they glassy-eyed and foaming at the mouth. They had, after all, managed to pass themselves off as members in good standing of a decent academic society for a number of years. They were a bit quieter than many others. They took up less space in the room, but then that was normal for people trying to raise three kids, and so they passed. Randy and Amy had spent a full hour talking to Scott and Laura last night. They were the only people who made any effort to make Amy feel welcome, Randy hadn't the faintest idea what these people thought of him and what he had done. But he could sense right away that essentially that was not the issue because even if they thought he had done something evil, they at least had a framework, a sort of procedure manual for dealing with transgressions. To translate it into Unix system administration terms, Randy's fundamental metaphor for just about everything, the postmodern politically correct atheists were like people who had suddenly found themselves in charge of a big and unfathomably complex computer system, society, with no documentation or instructions of any kind, and so whose only way to keep the thing running was to invent and enforce certain rules with a kind of neo-puritanical rigor because they were at a loss to deal with any deviations from what they saw as the norm. 
Whereas people who were wired into a church were like Unix system administrators who, while they may not understand everything, at least had some documentation, some FAQs and how-tos and readme files providing some guidance on what to do when things got out of whack. They were, in other words, capable of adaptability. Well, what does that have to do with the Episcopal Church? You've heard a lot these days about spiritual and not religious. And I don't throw cold water on that. I hope people are spiritual, even if they're not religious. But the spirituality that floats like a green gas around this culture did come from somewhere. And having some understanding of how people live a life of, with some degree of intention like Randy's two friends, may help us out. And the readme files and the FAQs and the how-tos come from what the Episcopalians believe is authoritative in our common life as Christians. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And you never fail if you understand that you can commend your greatest place of safety and assurance in the midst of that knowledge, deep things of the spirit, but to understand that you can do that without any kind of specific religious vocabulary, you can do it by being the best human being you can be. The people who heard Jesus saw his mighty works and were eyewitnesses to his rising from the dead understood that if God were a man walking around on the earth, this is who he would be like. And furthermore, they understood not that this was just some tableau that they were watching, but that he had actually given each person tools that they could use in order to grow into that humanity, in order to grow into being made in the image and likeness of God. So the Episcopal Church has a, a high tolerance for... Uh, tolerating ambiguity. Have you ever been in a situation where you have felt yes and no at the same time? And the difficulty that that brings to all of us with regard to making uh, decisions, the double bind, where each choice is equally good but equally disastrous. And how do you begin to develop the strength and the wisdom to do that by honing all of your emotional, mental, and spiritual skills. Alan Jones, in his book, uh, Common Prayer on Common Ground, said that here are seven things that we might commend to one another. The willingness to question joined to deep affirmation. The intuitive understanding of the Christian life that it is both inward and outward. The unique appreciation of the uniqueness of the individual together with the value of what is corporate and traditional. The ability to speak with the old authority and the new culture. The eagerness to be spiritually honest and not willing to disguise the element of conflict in our relationship with God. The openness of a discerning, discerning heart, one that knows what matters and what does not. In the early Christian church, that there was a word for that, there is a word for that in Greek, 
adiaphora. Adiaphora means matters indifferent. And Christians have spent a lot of time for 2,000 years trying to figure out what matters indifferent are. And you and I, on a daily basis, are always struggling with what matters and what doesn't. Some of us have become sick or crazy because we thought some things were essential that were not. And some of us have harmed ourselves because we didn't think some things were essential. And so you and I need to struggle always on what is adiaphora. The church, in its most conflicted, which has been fairly recently, has struggled precisely over what is adiaphora and what is not adiaphora. And I'm pleased to say I believe we have made maybe that much forward progress because we have decided, or a large portion of the church has decided, that we've been spending too much time on some things that are, in fact, adiaphora. So that is a daily internal spiritual undertaking of each human being, each Christian person, and the continuous processes of the church of God. And finally, the remarkable capacity to hold together things often believed to be separable or opposed to one another. You know, we spend a lot of time struggling with what some people call black and white thinking. It's either this or it's this. And it could be both and. And that's what we need to think about too. So as you proceed through the great 50 days of Easter, give thanks for the presence of God's light, God's life, and God's love. These three things are in every human being. And Father Thomas Keating would call those things our true self. We are not God, but our true self is God. Amen.